Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. I can, you know, I've been on this staff with Ross. He's been on staff for 35 years. I, I have for 23. And um, I can confirm what Matt said, Ross and Judy, that um, you guys' hearts for this church uh, have never wavered the love and the, the, the gift you've been to us. So blessings, Ross. Now go over and do what you gotta do. Get out of here. I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16, Acts 17. 16, and um, you know, there are some things that you can't have by chasing them. There's some things you can't have by pursuing the thing itself. It reminds me of um, like being, uh, uh, for me, a husband or a father. Um, You know, early on in my marriage, I really was trying to be a good husband to Charlotte, and by trying to be a good husband, or trying to be a good father by (laughs) trying to be a good father. And I realized way too late in the game, but thankfully God started to help me realize that I don't become a good husband and father by trying to be a good husband and father. I become a good husband and father by being a good son of my father in heaven, by being close to Jesus. That as Jesus makes me more like him, I become, what, what better husband and father could my wife and kids have than someone who's like Jesus, right? So you don't get the thing by pursuing the thing, you get the thing by pursuing God. I think of another example would be like, we all want our kids uh, to physically grow up healthy, right? And um, we don't do that by like (laughs) sitting them down across the table and being like, Emily, grow. Like we, we don't do that, right? That, that doesn't work. We don't get their growth by, by pursuing growth. We feed them healthy food. We make sure they get plenty of sleep and exercise, okay? Maybe limit the screen time too, right? And, and so we, we don't get the thing we want by pursuing the thing. We, we get it by way of the things we must pursue. And, and Paul here, he's gonna be in Athens today. Paul is... is doing ministry with people who think that they are going to get what they want by pursuing those exact things. And it's like chasing the wind. Read this with me, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, idolatry in the first century world was not like rare. It's not like Paul came into Athens, like I've never seen this before. It wasn't that. It's just that Athens took it to like a whole nother level. It was like the epicenter of Greek philosophy and religion. And so this provoked Paul to engage the Athenians at the point of their deception, at the very place they were deceived. Paul follows the Lord into it and brings to them truth. Verse 17 So he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Remember that, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to, to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke has a little aside here commenting on the culture of Athens. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just talked a lot. They talked a lot about philosophies and this is what I believe. You know, it reminds me of, I don't know, the news media today, just talking a lot. You know, a lot of talking, no answers uh, or some answers, but they're horrible. And it, these people, they had ideas. They had ideas. Specifically, Luke brings out the Epicureans and the Stoics. And there is so much in this passage today we could delve into, but I'm not going to. I honestly just want to just, just trace one line through this, and that's Paul's interaction with these Epicureans and Stoics. You see, these were two different philosophical backgrounds. Both had, at the core of their philosophies, the pursuit of happiness. Some, everyone knows that the Epicureans did, but some people would say, no, the Stoics didn't. They, they were Stoic. That's where you get that, you know, that person's Stoic. They're serious. It's about morality. But the, actually, at the center of their philosophy was they're trying to pursue both individual happiness and also cultural happiness. The Epic, but they, they, they went about it in a very different way, pursuing happiness. The Epicureans pursued it through pleasure. The Stoics pursued it through morality. Both thinking that their way of pursuing happiness would get them to happiness. The Epicureans by seeking pleasure directly and the Stoics by seeking morality in themselves. And neither believed in a substantive afterlife and so their focus was really on the now, this life, what happens here. And either getting pleasure here or living in a moral, virtuous way here and now. My friends, there's truly nothing new under the sun. Did what I just say strike any chord with you with what you see people teaming up on today? Either pursuing pleasure, don't tell me what I should and shouldn't do, I'm gonna do what I want and whatever makes me happy, or people stepping in and saying, there's a morality that if we all stick to it, we'll have a prosperous society. Does it sound, does it sound familiar to you? Nothing is new under the sun. The culture wars we are experiencing today, at least in part, seem to be an echo of this ancient debate with people teaming up on one side or another. See, our culture wars are this. There are those who are seeking pleasure and there are those seeking morality. But ultimately, both, if you dig down, are seeking individual happiness, fulfillment, some of us view the greatest good as individual happiness and fulfillment, and anything that gets in the way of that should be eliminated. Don't tell me what I ought to do and not to do. If I enjoy it, I have the freedom to do it. What I choose is my choice, and it's my truth. Don't get in the way of me and my pleasure. But others of us view the greatest good being the pursuit of a moral code that society must adopt whereby we entitle ourselves to peace and prosperity. Two paths, but seeking the same thing. I want to be happy and prosperous. I'm seeking happiness, fulfillment, identity, and prosperity for myself. 
So just like us, both the Stoics and the Epicureans would have taken really big exception with most of what Paul was teaching. Our culture and all the different forms that people tend to live under, the philosophies they believe, would take major exception to what Paul is saying. Especially for the Stoics and the Epicureans, this idea of resurrection of the body after death, they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. So Paul's teaching about this guy. In their minds, you know, Athens is like, hey, you're first, okay, you're talking about a guy from Israel. Where's that? And you're saying that this guy died, is the king of the world. <laughs> and, and, and not only did he die, but he raised back to life. You're telling me this guy from out in the sticks died and raised back again, and somehow he's the king of the world. They looked down their nose at what Paul was saying. And Paul, in his address to the Areopagus, takes aim at both sides of the philosophical spectrum that were speaking to him and listening to him and everything in between. And instead, Paul's, Paul offers a third way, a completely unique way to believe and live. And this third way is a question to be answered. And the question is this, who is at the center of my universe? Who is at the center of my universe? And I'd ask you, to ask that question of yourself with me today, and not just of yourself, but of your family, and as us, us as a church, who's at the center of our universe? And before we answer too quickly, well, Jesus is, let's really quickly, let's just be honest. Is that always true? It's not in me. And really, if you like took an average of my life and the thing that I'm pursuing, would that be true? I hope so. But I don't think we should just assume that it is. I think this is something we should prayerfully go to God and ask him to reveal to us who is at the center of my universe. Moving on, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and this is where all the debates happened, he said this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I love how Paul uses something embedded in their own false worldview to introduce truth. They'd had this, who knows how long that altar had been sitting there to an unknown God. No one knows who it's for, but we're all, we'll offer sacrifices on it just in case there's a God out there we've missed that we don't wanna make mad. God's like, there is an unknown God to you and I'm gonna tell you about him right now. He wasn't afraid to use what was embedded in their culture in order to bring the truth of scripture to them. It's beautiful. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, Paul is saying, your attempts, dear Athenians, to please God by building temples and offering sacrifices, it's an exercise in futility. God doesn't need anything from you. If my God needs anything that I must provide him, that's a puny God. What kind of powerful being needs me, little old me, to provide him with offerings and sacrifices and a temple for him to live? Can what I make or give really contain an all-powerful God? 
And that applies to us, not just the Athenians. That applies to us when we make ourselves the center of the universe, when we make ourselves our own God. If, if I have needs that even I myself must meet, I'm a pretty puny God. If I don't get myself food and I die because of it, that's not very powerful. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul quotes some of their philosophers right here. That that isn't scripture from the Old Testament. This is Greek philosophers he's quoting against their own beliefs. 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because Messiah has come. The time for ignorance is over. God has revealed himself through Jesus, and so it's time to repent. 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him who Jesus from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. At the crux of what Paul is saying here is this, and this is true, just as true for us today as it was to the Athenians back then. At the center of every false religion is a false God. Let me be clear what I mean by that though. The false God is typically me, myself. Even though Greek philosophy of all flavors believed in a pantheon of gods, if you look at the heart of their teachings, the center of the universe was self. Why am I trying to please these gods? They're asking the question, how do I live in order to please the gods or please the fates or please virtue or natural law or please myself so that I, as an individual, find happiness? In other words, I attain meaning and fulfillment by focusing on me. I appease the gods so that I get what I want. At the core of their philosophies and religion was not the false gods. It was self-serving. It was themselves. And that is still the problem today. Nothing has changed. At the center of all the deception we are now facing is the lie that I am the center of the universe. That I'm worth living for. That fulfillment is about me finding and expressing my identity and my wants. And don't just point at other people and say, yeah, that's the way this darn culture is. Look inside. Look inside, friends. Is that the way our culture is? Yeah. Is that the way the world is? Yeah. But look in your heart and be honest. Don't skip over what God would show you there. I guarantee you there's these hidden relics of the past or even the present where you are at the center of your life 
And we think that fulfilling, fulfillment is about me and finding and expressing my identities and wants. But here's the issue. You already have an identity and it's awesome. You already have an identity and it's awesome. Why? Because you are made in the very image of God. What better identity do you want? Do I want? God says, when I made you, I looked at myself as the blueprint. Does that make us all gods? No. But we are images of God. We are made in his likeness. That's an awesome identity. Like Paul quoted, in him, God, we live and move and have our being. We are indeed his offspring. What better identity than to be the child of the God King of the universe? Soak that in. And being made in the image of God, what you truly want is woven into your very soul and DNA, whether you know it or not. You don't truly want things made by human hands. You don't want you, yourself, and you. What you really want is him, the God, whose very image is indelibly stamped upon you. What you want isn't the stuff. And what you want isn't your own forged morality that you've done by pulling up your bootstraps and doing it yourself. That's not what you want. That's not what your core identity and creative, what God has created you to be. That's not what you are or what you want. The reason we're all so dissatisfied is because what we want is him. And we're trying to satiate that need with so many other things. Paul offers us a revolutionary thought, and it's this. I'm not the center of the universe. Do you realize you will never be happy, never be joyful, as long as you are the center of your universe? You will be chasing fuel that you are not meant to run on. You're not meant to run on yourself. You're meant to run on God. I'm meant to run on God. And I don't find fulfillment or purpose or even happiness by pursuing myself, but I find these things by pursuing the one who is truly at the center of the universe. And there's another issue here, and it's our sin, our rebellion, our treason against God. Because we have dethroned God from the center of our universe, we're in need. When God's at the center of our universe, we have all that we need. When we dethrone him and take him away from that and provide for ourselves, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember what the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Eat this fruit and you can be like him. They already were. They were already made in the image of God. No, they weren't gods, but they were already made in the image of God. The devil tempted them to take what they already had, being made in the image of God. And yet they took it by other means and dethroned God. And ever since, this world's been in a really rough place. That's really underselling it. This world is broken, a rough place. That's the understatement of the year. We need repentance, forgiveness, and resurrection. Go back to what Paul says in verse 30, halfway through. But now he, God, commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You realize that the same person who will judge you is the same person who's stepping in and taking your penalty. The judge taking the execution in your stead. The judge stepping down from the bench and the execution that I deserve, he takes in my place. Do you realize how beautiful that is? How wonderful the gospel of Jesus is? Who does that? said earlier that at the center of every false religion or philosophy is a false God, me. But I would add this. There's something else at the center too. At the center of every false religion or philosophy is also a false savior. Guess who? Me, myself. Not only am I the one that I'm trying to serve and please, false God, but also I'm the one who is now trying to get myself out of the pit I dug for myself and I'm supposed to be my savior by either pleasure, pursuing a life that's enjoyable and pursuing things or pursuing virtue that though virtue may be good, if it's godless, it's still godless. God has offered forgiveness for the treason we've perpetrated. He desires that none should perish and bear the burden for their own sin. Instead, he offers Jesus as the righteous one in our place. And instead of eternal death that we have earned, through Jesus's death and resurrection, God offers us resurrection from the living death we're in. God is the giver, not me. God is the savior, not me. If you try to save yourself by morality and virtue, you will fail. If you're saying, well, I hope I've been a good person. I never murdered anyone. I never stole. I never cheated on my spouse. I never, and the list goes on. I don't lie or I try not to, or I just lie a little bit. I hope that the good that I've done will outweigh the bad. If that's how you're approaching God, you will fail. And he's not asking you for that. He asked Jesus for that. Jesus to live the perfect life and us to trust him. And then after trusting him and being saved, be conformed to his image after. Pleasure or morality cannot save you, cannot save me, because at the core of those beliefs, I am still at the center of the universe. At the core of me seeking my own pleasure or me seeking my own morality without God, who's at the center still? I am. You can't save yourself that way by thinking I'm the answer to my problems. If you put your trust in either of these pursuits, you are just as lost as the Epicureans and Stoics of old. No happiness after chasing it all your life and no resurrection when life is over. Friends, abandon this way of thinking and living. You're saying, I'm a Christian, of course I have. Not necessarily. 
I find myself regularly, for me, trying to make myself good enough for God by my own merit. Regularly trying to make what Jesus already did for me worth it to God. Make it up to him for all the wrong I've done. And he's like, son, you can't. You can't. But you can trust me and I can renew your heart and I will change you. It's beautiful. Do you really think that pleasure today will last? Pass today into the, the chapter of your life when you're old and gray and the grave is your next chapter. Do you really think you can produce enough pleasure in this life that will last to make it worth it? What pleasure have you ever been able to grasp onto and keep indefinitely? Is there pleasure you experienced a year ago that you still have operating at full potential today? No. How about anything, pleasure from yesterday? Are you still filling it and experiencing it to its full degree? No. Because it can't. It can't stay with you on your own. And do you really think that your incomplete morality can save you? As if God needs you to somehow provide him reasons for why you're good enough. As if what you do from now on can undo what you've already done. Explain that math to me. No amount of me seeking my own morality and integrity and character can make me any more acceptable to my God. Because there's one who did it better. And I, is this out? Okay, I can, this is important. Instead of my own, I can have an exchange and have his. You tell me which will please God, my incomplete morality or Jesus's perfect morality. You tell me which one will God be more pleased with? Tell me. Thank you. No, the answer is not pleasure or morality. The answer is Jesus alone. The third way is not seeking pleasure and my own truth and don't tell me what to do or seeking my own godless morality, trying to be good enough and never being able to. No, the third way is Jesus. Grace and forgiveness and mercy is freely offered from God who loves you so much that he would allow his own son, Jesus, to suffer on your behalf. You don't have to earn it. God did not sacrifice your morality and virtue on the cross. He sacrificed Jesus. If it was about being moral and virtuous enough for God, then he would have sacrificed you on the cross. He didn't. He sacrificed the one who was perfectly virtuous. So we don't trust in our morality and virtue. We trust in the sacrifice that God trusted in on our behalf, Jesus. And here's the mind-blowing reality. When we stop seeking our own pleasure or morality as the center of our universe and we seek Jesus instead, ultimately we get complete happiness and holiness forever. We get the things that other people seek directly, indirectly, when, when I give all of my heart and life and I surrender to Jesus and I am in deep relationship with him, 
and intimacy with him daily, I've never been happier. I've never been more joyful and it's never been more sustained. Why? Because it's what I was meant to live off of. But I don't get it by pursuing the happiness. I get it by pursuing Jesus. When I do the same thing and spend time with Jesus in his presence, loving him, seeking him, just looking upon him and worshiping him and talking with him and listening to him. He changes my heart. He changes my character from the inside out. And so I get a morality, I get a character, I get a virtue and holiness, but not created by me, created by his hands. There are some things we can't get by pursuing the thing. We get it by pursuing Jesus, and we find that he's better than those things. He's better than pleasure. He's better than my virtue. He's the treasure. So I don't want to give you a bunch of stuff to do today, church. I want to give you a conversation to have with the Lord, and the conversation is that first question. Who's at the center of my universe? What is at the center of my universe? What am I actually going after and pursuing. And if the answer is honestly anything but Jesus or Jesus is sharing that place, then the grace of God is going to bring you to the next space of surrendering to that. He's that good. He'll lead you into it. He'll do it. But you gotta keep going back to the well that never once runs dry. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you're all sufficient merit is enough for us and we thank you that in your presence there is pleasure forevermore. Teach us to seek you first, your kingdom and your righteousness and all these other things will be added as well. We give you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.